Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts of the program, and we have a very special treat for you today. We have David Allman. He is the owner and chairman of Regent Partners, which is a real estate development company based in Atlanta, and we both come to you from Atlanta. Normally, I come to you from Houston, but uh, we're here. Uh, David has kindly allowed us to uh, use his conference room and have this conversation. So, uh, David, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Well, you know, we always try to start the podcast, David, with a little bit of context about kind of how you grew up. I think that kind of sets the table. So tell us where you grew up, what your family was like, that sort of thing. Yeah, I grew up here in Atlanta. Both, uh, you know, my, my, both my parents grew up here and uh, he, he's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine guy. And, uh, you know, grew up in, I would call it a kind of an upper middle class environment. Uh, I never had a lot of spending money, but educated in private school and never lacked for anything. And I would say he was a very kind of driven, hardworking man, almost workaholic-like. And so I would say growing up, achievement. Yeah. Um, well, he was an academic to get through school that far, right? Yeah. So he wanted you to be, I'm sure. Yeah. And so I think, um, you know, kind of a word for success oriented. Yeah. Home and it's true. A lot of my my friends and in, in grade school and high school is like you know post war, then yep. hard working. We're putting bread on the table. We're doing the most important thing we need to be doing, and yeah. not a lot of nurturing. But I think I got a lot of my self esteem growing up, probably from trying to achieve. Yeah. So I would say by the time I was nearing the end of my high school career, I did I had done. Well, I was active in sports, did well in school, grade-wise, and socially very active, but something was missing on the inside, and looking back, I think it was, I was very uh, self-absorbed, and but emptier and emptier, and into my life, toward the end of my high school career, uh, walked a uh, young life leader. Yeah, and so I think sometimes, now, my dad was a pastor, and so growing up for me, Young Life was this thing that happened outside the church that I didn't really know about because for me, everything was like inside the church. But I've come to have a lot of friends like you that uh, lives have really been impacted meaningfully uh, through Young Life outside the church. So what was that like? What was it about that process? Or was it a special leader? Was it just the wisdom of it? Was it a combination? What was it that sort of hit you about Young Life? It was a special leader. It was- yeah. Johnny Wilson. Yeah, there you remember the name. That's, yeah. That's a, yeah, we, I mean, stayed in touch. Wow. You know, friends to this day. Wow. Um, but yeah, he was there, sought me out. Yeah. Which, you know, typical yeah. chemo and just asking, I was asking lots of questions. He was helping me as best yeah. he could. And, right. and uh, yeah, for me, it, in that journey, I really wanted to make sure, you know, Christianity had integrity from an intellectual yeah. perspective. Yeah. So I was a, you were asking questions, a lot of questions. Lots of questions. Yeah. Does this make sense? And and holistically, does it make sense? And so forth. And yeah. is it not just a, you know the emotional crush or whatever? And uh, but he was there, patient and yeah. And you know, my way wasn't working, and so right. um, I came to believe that you know Jesus was who he said he was, and 
And so that was my conversion time, kind of being my high school. And then the next few to several years was kind of starting me on my, my journey where, you know, I was really trying to, I'd say, establish my worldview. Yeah. You know, a lot of C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, a name from... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later on, a little bit of... Principles are all the same, though. Yeah, yeah, you know. But I came out of that as a young adult with, I'd call it a well-formulated theology, if you will. Yeah. And if I were going to just summarize it, you know, succinctly, uh, if before my conversion, it was my way wasn't working, and then afterwards, I was basically saying... God way, God's ways will work, and if I'm not trying to make a difference, I'm just taking up space. Mm-hmm. So like I was, you know, the faith foundation was one thing, but what does that mean to live it out? You know, how should we then live? And, and so even as a young adult, even though, you know, got married, started on my career in real estate, still had this yearning to get involved in civic and ministry stuff early on. And, uh, you know, a lot of those, I think a lot of those, what someone like Bob Buford would call probes. Low, yeah, low-cost probes. I think those started for me kind of early in adulthood and helped kind of shape some of the foundations that I think really have led to kind of some of the things I'm involved with today. Well, so high school, now that's a, that's a hard time, and you don't have all the life experience you have now. And so working all that faith out over your career, you know, I don't, I don't think we ever get to that destination. But you're, you're always working on it. And, and then, of course, you transition into college because Young Life, I assume, was in high school, right? So college, you go off to college. Where'd you go? And how did that go? Did the faith kind of fall off a little as it does for most? Or did you, were you able to kind of sustain it? How did that work? Yeah, I went to Dartmouth. Yeah. It's a long, long way from here. And I say my freshman year was kind of, you know, I was, I was doing some sports, uh, that, which was kind of got me really Took up a lot of focus yep, and a lot of time, you know, joined, joined a fraternity. And, and I would say, yeah, I would say the, this kind of the spiritual walk was probably not abandoned, but sidelined. Yeah. 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 A little bit. I think, you know, the freshman uh, summer, yeah. uh, freshman after college is uh, actually was a junior counselor, a young life trip, you know, out West. And, uh, and I really made a determination to go back my sophomore year have my faith more central to who I was and my experience there and got involved in a fellowship up there. And, okay. and, and from then on, it, it was, I mean, plenty of missteps and sidesteps along the way, sure. but uh, it was still very central to my college. So grade school, when you get out and uh, wh- what did you study and what was the first job? Well, <laughs> I studied economics. Well, because they don't have business at Dartmouth, I don't think, right? right. It's just economics are the closest art. thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Right. That, that's correct. And uh, I really enjoyed economics and macroeconomics in particular and uh, got out. And I know I wanted to go into business of some sort, did not really have any idea. I thought I'd go to business school. My dad, who's, like I say, sports medicine physician, had an executive fitness thing. I got out college a few months early and he said, come help me with this. And that turned into three years. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, the only school I applied to for business school turned me down, and uh, and so I was just it's almost a process of one nation. My father-in-law what was a real estate developer, and he was a kind of a charismatic fellow, and that seemed about as appealing as anything. And so, about about twenty-four, twenty-five, 
I decided to jump into real estate. Uh, isn't that amazing how that happens? I mean, we're we're sitting in your conference room with a giant model of a skyscraper next to us, and uh, none of that would have happened if, well, my father-in-law seems okay, he's got a job, uh, he's going to point me in a direction, and here we go. It's just amazing how God puts those things together, and uh, they seem like small decisions at the time, but that, that sets you on a, a whole different course. So how does the real estate career take off? Well, I started out leasing office space, Bethany yeah. Wakefield, mid, sure. you know, national platform, kind of learned the marketing side of it. I don't think I ever thought I would just do, just do brokerage. Yeah. So. Stepping stone kind of. Yeah. yeah. And uh, did that for three or four years, then got called by a Texas developer that was, you know, trying to ramp up. And that, that was, you know, I decided to do that to kind of broaden my platform and got me on the kind of the owner side of things. Okay. And, uh, and then that, this was like, we're, we're now getting into kind of the late, uh, mid, late eighties. Yeah. Uh, when, when. Yes. And now crisis. Yeah. And, um, this was a real estate induced recession. <laughs> yes. It's not, you were in the epicenter. Yeah. This wasn't outside. This is when the Texas developers took taken over and yep. Texas banks that, uh, you know, were lending and I was with a Texas developer and, and so I'd say, I think it was about two years into that, I got laid off. Yeah. And, and I think a, a year later, that company was bankrupt. I literally in the, uh, I'm having flashbacks in the summer of, I believe it was 1991, Arthur Anderson sent me to Washington, D.C. to run the war room for the RTC. I'm not Resolution Trust Company, where they took over all the banks, yeah. put all the real estate in there, and I'm... I'm in my poly blend suit, all of about 23 years old, selling these properties yeah. that uh, where all these Texas banks had. Well, we've lost some of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually, I have a little story about that in my book about these guys coming in. It was probably you <laughs> high-fiving your buddies as I sold things for pennies on a dollar, clueless. And I was like, next time this happens, I'm hopefully I have a dollar to rub together with it. But anyway, so now that, but that was rough time for many people. And that wiped out a lot of people in real estate. But this sort of created, luckily you were young enough, I guess. I know that was a big setback for you, but how did that create opportunity? Well, you know, I was on my, I was on my own. I, I didn't want to go back into brokerage. Yeah. And so I went sure what I wanted to live a little, little bit like. I didn't know what one do I got out of college. I didn't really know what my next move in real estate was, but I, you know, I did think the investment slash development side was where I wanted to end up. Uh, so after a year of my own end up, actually we, Form Regent Partners, the, you know, the company that uh, I now own in uh, 1988. Wow. Well, uh, four other guys that worked, uh, we had a connection with some of them in, from church, and they were in the brokerage business here. And we decided to form uh, a company in 88. And, it, and this, these were, like I say, we were in it was recession time, and we were a brokerage firm. And then uh, within a year, then within two years, we, as a company, were approached twice by a, a big brokerage firm to uh, help them launch and, and or beef up their Atlanta okay. brokerage platform. And my partners, who were more brokerage-oriented, wanted to do that because of the, the better platform. I, didn't, I knew I didn't want to do that, so they left. I kept Regent Partners, okay. just a few employees. And then a few months later, I was approached by kind of a headhunter who was looking to look for head of a company and we ended up kind of really selling the company at that point mm -hmm. to a, a big ultimately German capital based group and so I went through about a 10-year period in that phase of the company where I was president CEO 
but I, I was not the owner of the yeah, company, right. but I had access to capital yeah. and in the early 90s, capital was king. So that's when- Very scarce. That's when yeah. the, the building we're in, we bought this okay. in early 90s and wrote it up and were very active by the mid 90s. We were, we transitioned, you know, Atlanta was leading the nation job growth there by the yeah. mid 90s. We were developing and gave me, uh, because I had access to capital, it gave me experience, developed a lot of different product types and then- Fast forward a little further, then the parent company started getting in financial trouble around 2000, and I had the chance. I ultimately had the chance to buy back. We bought it back, years, you know, 20 plus years ago. Wow! So now, so it was a kind of a full circle there. It's incredible. Okay, so you so you buy this thing back, and you're having some financial success. I, I assume as Regent now, your own company, you start developing things, you're starting to have some success, and at some point you hit a little wall and you can sort of take us up to that point, if you will, or maybe there's a few more steps that happen, but you kind of had what we've talked about as a kind of a halftime moment along the way. What was kind of leading up to that and maybe get into that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think in a transaction oriented business, you know, there, I suspect for most people, there's probably a handful of kind of defining moments where yep. A particular project or transaction comes along that it's a quality or size or something right. that kind of takes you to a, a new level. level. Now, if you're just building an operating company, it may be a slow, different. Yeah, but we're more of a transaction yeah, project-based firm, and so uh, being able to buy something like Tower Place, this right. th this complex in Buckhead, kind of put us on the map. It was right. a big deal, and right. you know we we became uh, you know a player that we had. That deal's kind of put you on the map. So that made you kind of go, okay, wait, did the dog catch the car? You know what I mean? Like, this was going to make me happy. I've been chasing success. And then, but, how that feeling? But just like, you know, you had access to capital. So a lot of that opens up a lot of doors in the early 90s. Right. And like I said, we bought some RTC property. Yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and so those were good times because yeah. the, market, the market recovered a lot more quickly than a lot of people were expecting. I mean, the Trammell Crows were like, you know, they were... These Texas people were like doomsday. They were. And, but within four or five years, you were back and- Joining me in. Yeah, here we go. Right, we want to go on. And yep. so uh, that can mean a lot of, you know, people talk about location, looking, you know, if, how about timing, timing, timing. That is true. So it's really, so I was very fortunate to have access to capital and that not only yeah. gave me a platform in a difficult time, but it allowed me to do a lot of different product types. But, you know, every recession, I mean, you, you never- you know, we they come and it's hard to anticipate them. I think the best thing that I can say is like, you know, be conservative enough in the good times so you don't get squashed in the bad times. And particularly if you're a, you know, the development side, which can be very lumpy anyway. And it's, you know, there's a big fear of missing out when things are going well. And there's just that, that temptation just to, to go forward and take and take an ordinate risk, and for some people that can work, but that's where there's a, there's a, it can be it can be fragile too. Yeah. So now we talked about your faith happening through young life as a high schooler, and where does the kind of your faith start playing into your career? How do you start thinking about using your platform that you've got here in business for, for ministry purposes and that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. I would say, you know, you think of the kind of the approaching midlife. Yeah. I'm going to say mid thirties, 
mid to late 30s, maybe a little yearning that, you know, I'm still raising kids, you know, still trying to grow my business. Those are, but a little bit of a, a boy saying, is that all there is? Yeah. As well. And, and then, you know, my wife and I, with some other couples, attended the old foundation conference that Bob Buford oh, yeah. put on. Oh, yeah. And we, you know, we, we did that and got to know Bob pretty well. And I remember him in kind of breakout sessions talking about, this halftime idea before yeah. the book came out. Yeah. And so when the book came out, read that book. I mean, it resonated. Yeah. Like, okay, you're speaking to me. And so I'm going to guess I was 40-ish okay. when the book came out. And it kind of validated some things that were already going on inside. Again, I was reasonably agile. I was on boards and, yeah. you know, elder deacon in the church, right. things like that. So I, I was not Completely inactive, inactive, but but hadn't really maybe found the thing or yeah. the total integration. So that kind of, I think, kind of was a shot of intentionality yeah, to start I like that. Start transitioning, you know, thinking more about parallel tracks of, you know, you've got your business over here, but, you know, think about how to be a little more intentional over here and think about concepts like how do you begin creating more margin to hang yep. up more ability. A focus on those projects. Yeah, margin, time margin, emotional margin, things like that. And so, and then I think a pivot point for, for me was about the time I turned 50. My wife and I turned 50 is uh, we, our, our kids were empty nested. They went, yep. and, and business was going well. Yep. And so it was a time where I, I felt like I could pull back more intentionally from the, from the, from the day-to-day aspects of the business. That's when I went from president to chairman yeah and you know name one of my partners ch- president and w- so i had to be more intentional Let it, less of the day-to-day yeah. grind freeing up more time okay. and uh so everybody would understand kind of those expectations right and some you know is a time where you know uh empty nesting particularly for my wife like what now for her you know yeah as she's pouring herself into the family so you know that's that was really when we were hoping to maybe find something we could do together more yeah. as part of that. But, uh, and it was also when just in some reflection time, uh, we, you know, we talked a little earlier about Nicaragua. That's yeah. when I felt like God kind of planted the seed in my mind about uh, an idea that led to this project in Nicaragua. Now, I've heard before you talk about an inspiration diversifying your ministry. So it sounds like you were doing a lot of things, maybe locally around Atlanta, that sort of thing. So talk to us about how you found out about this project in, in Nicaragua that I, you're still involved in today. Yes. Well, you know, I think it was, uh, it was a convergence of a few things. It was, I think we heard Rick Warren talk about, you know, just like you would uh, diversify an investment portfolio. Yeah, your asset allocation of giving, yeah. we would call it. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And, and my wife, Donna, and I felt like we were underweighted in international or international poverty. Sure, sure. sure. And so that, that, that little seed was planted. And then about the same time, we were introduced to this large international NGO, Opportunity International, yep. that, was, that was doing a lot of primarily microfinance yep. in you know, developing countries around the globe. And uh, we liked that idea. And it was a hand up instead of a hand down. Yep. Self-sustaining model, self-sustaining model. So we liked that. So we made a modest gift to them. And, and so between empty nesting, looking for something, looking international, found an opportunity international, 
And uh, to, to, just to back up a step, uh, one of the things I'd been involved in in Atlanta from my 30s on yeah. was involving in kind of urban Atlanta, some of the underserved or blighted neighborhoods with a guy named Bob Lupton, who was kind of one of the thought and practice leaders for how do you do community redevelopment work? You know, how do you take these marginalized communities and try and get them to flourish or thrive? And so I was kind of, he was a, an informal mentor to me. Okay. And so, you know, by the time this was ha ha happening with, uh, you know, meeting Opportunity International, well, yeah, I said, well, is, is one day I, I felt like I just got a kind of a prompt from God that said, I, I, the idea was, I wonder what it would look like if we deployed the same principle yeah. and practice, or at least principles that were deployed in trying to turn around these urban American right. cities with the clients of Opportunity International in the developing country. You know, so that was the, the seed. seed. So I got with Bob Lupton and said, well, I got an idea here, yeah. you know, got a prompt. What do you think? That we got on a plane, went to Chicago, met with a group of uh, executives from Opportunity National, said, What do you think about launching? You know, we'll make the league give right. of launching a pilot project that with this thesis of using these principles that we yeah. got exposed to, working with some of your clients in one of the developing countries. Well, my wife and I wanted to be active in this. So when Opportunity Offer said, We need we can find something in Africa, we can find something in Central America. We said Central America. Shorter flight. Down there. <laughs> yeah. Shorter flight. Sounds yeah. familiar, right? Yeah. And so they had a, uh, and still have a, a microfinance organization in Nicaragua. So that's how it, that, that happened. Well, one of the things you were sharing with us earlier uh, that I thought was really important is you've been doing, you've been going down to Nicaragua now for how many years? Ballpark? 18. And uh, you were sharing with us earlier that, you know, it was a bit of a slog. And I think that's important, you know, because it kind of looks, if you look at it now, right, if, you, if, you, if, if we went down with, with you now and saw it, we'd be like, wow, this is amazing. It's sustainable. All these things are happening. But it didn't happen overnight. And I, I, think, I think that's an important story for somebody kind of running on the treadmill who's thinking about doing something and maybe, or maybe they're 10 years deep in a project. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and look, sometimes maybe you need to cut bait. If God tells you to cut bait, cut bait. But if he tells you to keep at it, I think this is an important story that it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows forever. Do you mind sharing a little bit of that journey? No, it was, yeah, a lot of bumps, a lot of, you know, a couple steps forward, step back type of thing. A lot of dark days. It was really, it turned out, I mean, it was a faith journey. There were times, there, like I said, there were dark moments where we didn't know whether the, the project would or should continue. Yeah. And then Somebody would show up or and God would show up in some way and, you know, give us a shot in the arm. And along the way, we've just had great couples come alongside us, uh, both to be, you know, fellow board members, donors, you know, have shared vision about how do you, what were holistic ways to help the working poor build community and provide, you know, economic opportunity. And uh, yeah, yeah, I would just say it's, you know, you get a prompt, you, you pray that you've heard well, listened right. well. And a lot of times, you know, I will, I'll, um, I'll look to, and this com comes back from Buford a little bit, his influence on me is, you know, you know, building the team. And I feel like if I've got an idea of this from God and then 
if, if, if a team doesn't show up or we can't build a team, I, but to me, that's a signal I may not have heard well. Yeah. You know, yeah, fair enough. So, I, you know, I think we were able over time to build a, a great team and that's in our darkest moments, you know, when we had to get rid of our director. Yeah. It was, it was unfilled and, you know, we were, we were really floundering a bit. Yeah. You know, we posted and this one guy shows up, answers up, you know, kind of a online job slot and uh just a extraordinary young man he was 29 i think at the time wow very entrepreneurial and he's just done remarkable work data cone done remarkable work first down there and he's just a entrepreneur that solved problems and has a heart for mission but still an extraordinary business guy and he's really he's been made made, made all the difference in helping us to get to where we are from a business development perspective and a program. As, I mean, talk, were you talking a little about what are some of those projects? You were telling us earlier, some of those projects. I know there's agriculture, tourism, but what are some of the projects that make this such a cool? Well, just talking about the ag, you know, we identified early on that we tried to do an asset inventory and uh, economic scans to figure out w- what are the things that we should do and listen to the people, get, get in community, leverage assets that they have in this case. A lot of farmers, right? Central America, a lot of farming. So that was an obvious industry to look at. And so find crops that they grow and can you add value to them so that they're not just selling a commodity, but they're, they're selling a processed or value add. So ultimately, uh, over time, we said, okay, with farmers, we really want to have a field to market strategy yeah. and connect these subsistent, subsistence, fall, smallholder farmers connected to the global supply chain. Well, because there were probably, and the deals that I've looked at like this, there's like five people in between in the supply chain. Yes. And the farmers literally- Yes, and yes, guess is on- Gets on the short end. Yeah. Right. And we went up into the coffee farms in Vietnam and literally the farmers just put the bags, they have a loudspeaker that says the price today and they put the beans on the side of the road and they just yeah. hand them the money. And, and so I've got some- family members trying to bridge that gap. So I've seen that somewhat, but it's that kind of thing. So you sort of yeah, you're, make them a little higher along the value chain, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the poor are often poor because of lack of access to things, whether exactly. it's capital, you know, markets, et cetera, and technical expertise right. and so forth. So a lot of your role in a community economic development model is to play an intermediating role, a facilitation role, not to do it for them, but to be a facilitator. So how can we help them get access to capital? Exactly. How can we bring in agronomists to make sure they've got good seeds, good good planting, good harvesting practices, et cetera? And ultimately, the, the, the maybe, the, you know, had been how, very importantly, how do you add value to their product? So this, you know, our yes. David Cohen, I mean, he, he traveled to look at where are the best yucca processing plants right. in the world. Right, right. And that was his standard. Right. So it's like expanding our vision. Right, right, right. We're thinking this level. He's like expanding our vision. Say he's like, it's like let's go yeah, big, go big, or go home. Yeah. Like he's saying, unless you unless you're globally competitive, you're not fully competitive. Right. Right. It's true. So this kind of got that, and then you, you build a processing plant uh, that takes longer and what have you, and then you've got a long sales cycle. We're <laughs> we're processing a, a crop in Nicaragua, which has its political challenges, and you're selling to, you know, food grade product to companies in the U.S. It's like sourcing and yeah, these so it's a fairly long sales cycle. So you know, we missed budget after budget, schedule after schedule, 
And, um, but you know, our board was extraordinarily faithful, but, you know, writing checks and opportunity was helping us raise money through this process. And, uh, so, but it, it was, it was a journey of faith, but a lot of, a lot of dark moments. Man. And, and of course it's a success story. There's sustainability there. You've been going down there and this is, this is one aspect. Uh, I'm just coming off of a, of a recent meeting. I was telling you with, uh, uh, some friends of ours were selling their company and, the the Patriarchs number one question was, how can I get my grandkids more involved in giving and this whole idea of generosity that's been such a help to me in my life and in my walk with God. And, and so I think this is such a neat story that you really stuck with it, you know, and, and you've got to see the fruit of it, but then you've also taken your kids and your grandkids. So tell, what do those trips look like? How did you, how did you, I want to say talk them into going, but you probably didn't have to, but what did that look like? Well, no, I think it's not that hard to get your kids to, to go see someplace they haven't seen before. Yeah, it's, okay. It's, it's land of lakes and volcanoes, so it's, it's interesting, and, and they some interest in the work. But I do think that, you know, regardless of how attractive you can make a place seem, I just think the benefits of parents exposing their kids to international poverty mm. is, is really critical. Get out of the bubble and... We think we understand poverty in this country. When you go to a developing country and you see poverty, it's, a, it's a got a different face to it. And you, and you look at half or 60% of the world lives on $4 a day or less. So this is not the aberration. This is the norm. This is Actually, norm. we're the aberration. Yeah, this is the norm. So I think just eat, whether it's an, a trip that they get excited about, I think it's a, a kind of trip that needs to take place. Right. But, you know, the kids, we went down earlier and they they... It wasn't a hard sell for whatever it was not a hard sell. They've they've embraced it and we just like say got back recently taking our grandkids down there. Yeah. And that was great. I mean, uh it, it's fun. I mean, we, we do trips that when we do these trips and we do insight trips with Opportunity International and Bree, sure. you know, perspective dones refer and visions and trips. Yep, yep. yep. And um, you know, we, we try to do a nice blend of recreation right. to work in the field and it's it's a very You're not making them just uh, harvest yucca the whole time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you, and yes, you know, we, tourism, so we built a nice boutique. Right, hotel. right. Okay, oh yeah, there you go. Around all the, okay. Very beautiful crater lake. Smart. So it, your combinations are very nice. Yeah. We, we, we built an entrepreneurial high school to teach these kids how to, you know, get career ready. And yeah. so there are a lot, lot of interesting things to see. Have your... How deeply have your kids embraced this? Do you think this is something that they'll do after you're gone, or do they have other things that you think they'll they'll be more interested in? Is it too early to tell? Well, it's probably a little early to tell. And certainly, if we, you know, Don, I've always encouraged them to follow your passion yeah. and skills and what have you. But having said that, you know, just coming fresh off a trip, I mean, they've they've supported the project financially. Yeah. They like to go down there. I think they would like to go down there more than they've been able to because they all have kids of their own. Yeah. And, you know, their their oldest kids are 12 now, and so they're in, the, in that busy season of life. Yeah. Sporting games, sporting events, and what have you, and how much time can they take off. But they embrace it, and we, we hope they'll, they'll stay with it, and I very likely will. Well, we've got, you know, with advising families, you know, we've got these things we kind of take folks through a little little program and and one of them is giving oxygen to the kids and grandkids ideas so i like that idea of hey show them what you're doing 
one of them is take them with you, you know, lead them, take them with you, expose them to it. And if that's the thing that God has them turned on about from a giving perspective, then great. But if not, also encouraging, just like you said, I thought that was another great principle is, hey, you just want them to follow, it sounds to me, what God would have them do. Yeah. And if it's something else, and God speed to them. And, and, and I feel like anybody that's got surplus ought to be doing something for international poverty. You know, there are a lot of ways to do that. But so exposing people yeah. to it and then say, you know, you'll find it, is, but it can yeah. be any number of things. Yeah. But get that into your portfolio. I love that. Well, thank you for your work you've done on that. I just think that's, uh, that's amazing. So as we, as we wrap up uh, the podcast, you know, the, the final question we always ask is, you know, there's somebody running on the treadmill or walking down the street who's going, man, I haven't built a real estate empire and uh, I haven't been working 18 years in a developing market uh, someplace, but I'm, I'm feeling that itch, maybe like what you were, maybe they're just getting to an empty nest or something and they're feeling a little margin or, and they're trying to think, where do I even begin? What, what sort of practical tip would you give them, to, something they could think about doing tomorrow? Well, you know, there, there are people out there now, I mean, coaches and whatever, but you got half yeah. time, half yeah. time institute. That's true. They've got, you know, great coaches that yeah. can, if you're trying to figure out your passions or what have you, they'll, they'll, they'll coach you through that. You know, uh, they, you talk about probes, you know, the yeah. low cost probe, yeah. you know, try something without. You don't have to commit to a 10 year program yeah. in go, some place. Just go down go and check it out. Here was something that's on your heart. You know, and, and see how you like it. You might love it. You might not. You don't have to get on the board right away. You could just go and stop. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I, I've enjoyed kind of startup type. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. you know, it's important. And there are plenty of people doing great things out there. Join in with somebody that's already doing something. There you go. Well, and see how you like it. And if you like it, increase your role. Right. If you don't, go try something else. Yeah. I, obviously, go, go to people around you that, Maybe maybe have a better sense of who you are and what well, they've seen about you. Get, smart. get their feedback. Your spouse. Great point. Try to do something you know that you know that she's on board with. Well, what's interesting is one thing I wrote down as you were talking about Nicaragua was that you were helping them leverage assets that they have. You know, you kind of do an assessment, and then I think that's an elegant way to end this. Is your advice to the other business owners? who would like to be more generous is also to leverage their assets. You know, hey, take an assessment, yeah. maybe from your friends also, of what do they think you're good at, and, and ask out what your passions are, and leverage your assets too. Well, golly, the, the Bible is chock full of warnings about riches. And so, to me, for somebody with surplus, and particularly if you've got a bunch of surpluses, whether you start out out of a sense of obedience rather than joy, you you, you better you better deal with it because and it's and it forces you to be on a faith journey because it's not something you say okay today I'm going to be generous. It's something you deal with tomorrow, yeah. next week, next month, and and the way and to be and to be smart about it. how do you be a good steward? You know those that's not always easy. So I think it forces you to say, well, you know, how do I be strategic? You know, and right. I'm a businessman. I want an ROI, but how do you still have space for compassion or the spontaneous? Right. So these are decisions that are not just scripted in a plan that you 
you make and then you find one time. It's not a one time document and done. It's a journey. And yeah. thank God wants it that way. Yeah. So that you, you constantly call to look to him to say, right. give me wisdom, give me humility and wrestle with it every day of your life. Yeah. It's actually em- embracing that journey, embracing the adventure, frankly, of not knowing it. Yeah. It'd be boring if we knew all the steps. And and sometimes if you knew what was around You wouldn't point, do it. <laughs> Empty years. Yeah. If you knew it, it would have taken you so many years to break even. I don't know if you've done it. But well, David, this has been a joy. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pleasure. podcast. All right. And thanks everybody for joining us on this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. Leave us your rating and reviews and tell your friends about it, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.